Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do ask that you would revive us. Give us life through your word. Of your own will, you have brought us forth by the word of truth. Now may we receive this implanted word. Pray that, Lord, you would work in us by the power of your spirit, that we would bear good fruit as your word takes root deeper and deeper in our hearts. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. That's beautiful. You know, a lot of the psalm, particularly Psalm 119, there's a constant refrain of asking God to give me life in your way. Psalm 119 is really a prayer. And I think the New King James is revive me in your way. And it's this idea of what you exactly were you singing. Beautiful. Now let's give attention to God's word. This is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. I just want my children to be happy. <clears throat> we hear that a lot. Find a job that makes you happy. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by inalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We probably have seen the movie with Will Smith, The Pursuit of Happiness. We've seen the Despicable Me Too and Pharrell Williams singing, clap along if you feel like a room without a roof because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel what happiness is to you because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. I'm happy. And of course, Bobby McFerrin has taught us, well, here's a little song I wrote. You may want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Be happy. Our culture worships happiness. God exists for my personal happiness. After all, isn't that what being American is all about? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's our constitutional right to be happy. And when this gets elevated and mixed in with the steroids and stirred up, when we take this further, God would not want you to be unhappy and therefore you should probably quit your job. God would not want you to be unhappy so you should quit your marriage. And a lot of people leave their marriage because they want to be happy and God doesn't want them to be unhappy. Here's the irony. Hardly anybody is truly happy. And yet that's <clears throat> what this Hebrew word here, blessed, means. It's the Hebrew word, there are two Hebrew words for bless. And, we, and our English translations just translate them blessed, but they mean two different things. The one is Baruch or Barak, Baraka, and the other is Asher. And Barak means the opposite of a curse. 
It is the covenant blessings. It is to honor, to prosper. And it's the word that we often use when we worship God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. That's not the word here in Psalm 1. That's the, that's the Barak word, Baruch. And so uh, the other word that's used is a share. And it simply means happiness or to be truly happy. And the Psalms are actually written that you may have a happy and blessed life. That's the direction of the Psalms. And so the struggle of the Psalms is they're written intentionally. And you're going on this journey through the Psalms. And you start into this journey and you realize there's instantly a tension between the righteous and the wicked. And somebody asked last week in the Q&A, What's the difference between the righteous and the wicked in the Psalms? I hope we answer that question this morning. As you look at Psalm 1 and 2, it answers that question for us. But there's tension between the righteous and the wicked. And they both are pursuing happiness in two completely different ways. And as this tension goes through the Psalms, there's constant persecution upon the righteous that's coming from the wicked. And... There's this tension, and then there's all this suffering and frustration that how come I'm not truly happy? And it isn't resolved until you get to the last five psalms, where you kind of get the hallelujah chorus of blessing. But there are many psalms that begin with happy. I'll just give you a couple that begin with it. Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2. Happy or blessed is the one whose transgression, excuse me, I'm going to get some water. Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there's no deceit. Psalm 41. Happy is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Psalm 112, verse 1, praise the Lord, happy is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Psalm 119 begins, happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Happy are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Psalm 128, blessed is he who fears the Lord, or happy is he who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And the very last one, where you kind of get the resolve of happiness is Psalm 146, 5. Is happy is he whose help is, in the, is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the, lo- the Lord his God. 28 times in the Psalms we're given happy promises. Well, how come most of us aren't happy? Well, Robert Frost's famous poem, you probably remember, two, two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled, and that is made all the difference. Two roads. Two roads in this psalm. You have the righteous and the wicked. And you have two different loves, two different affections, two different lifestyles, two different choices, two different gods, two different ends, two different uh, reaping and or sowing and reaping is completely different. Interesting thing, I remember years ago when I was witnessing to my mechanic who was working on my car. And uh, I happened to be there next to him while he was working. And, and um, he 
He was a friend of my dad's. I've shared this story before, and he was telling me as he was working on my car that his girlfriend and they lived together, <clears throat> she had become a Christian, and she had gotten into Jesus, and he was just bewildered by that. And, and she was getting ready, lo and behold, either she was, had been baptized or was getting ready to be baptized. And he was realizing their relationship was coming to an end because she was realizing that she was with him and that wasn't going to work. And so he was lamenting to me, and I was trying to witness to him, and I was telling him about heaven and about hell and about Jesus. And I'll never forget his reply to me as he weighed that over and he said, I just wish there was more than two options. (laughs) And I thought that was the most interesting statement because what he was saying was, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to be punished for my sin. I don't want to suffer and go where bad people go, but I don't want to go to heaven either because I don't love God, I don't love Jesus, I don't love the church, I don't love the blood of Jesus saved me from my sin. I don't want to go there. I just wish there was a third option. And the reality is there's not a third option. The Bible speaks of two over and over and over again. And when Jesus finishes his sermon on the mount, He goes into rapid fire and he talks about two gates, two trees, and two foundations. And so he says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And and those who find it are few. And then he says that every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And then he closes the Sermon on the Mount with everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like a wise man, or does do them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the flood came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the crash of it. You see, there's two gates, two trees, two foundations. Two kinds of reaping and sowing. Do not be deceived, for God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Jeremiah put it like this in chapter 17, which is probably the closest passage to Psalm 1. It says in verses 5 to 8, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He'll dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Yikes. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, doesn't fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it's not anxious in the year of drought, nor does it cease to bear fruit. Sound like Psalm 1? You see, here we have two similes. What are the two similes in Psalm 1? What are they? 
Look again at the text. Two similes. The righteous are like a tree. A tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf doesn't wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. This tree is planted. It's planted by streams of water. But the wicked, they get another simile. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Puff, and it's gone. Very, very different simile description, isn't it? Well, that's what you have here in this psalm. We have two different descriptions. We have the righteous prospering and the wicked perishing. The righteous are blessed. They are happy. The wicked are cursed, forever punished and unhappy. The righteous are like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in its season, while the wicked are like chaff, which the wind blows away. There's nothing of substance to them. The main difference between them is what they meditate upon and delight in. The righteous delight in the word of God, and it's their meditation day and night. The wicked, we're told what they meditate on day and night because Psalm 1 and 2 are connected. And Psalm 2 begins with, why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate in vain or plot in vain? It's the same Hebrew word. It's what they muse about. It's what they meditate upon. And their meditation day and night is how they can be free from this Lord and from his Christ, from his Messiah, from his Christos, saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Their meditation is on how to get free from God. We don't like this God, and we won't have him over us. And so their meditation is on autonomy, on how to self-rule their life. And so they're going in two completely different directions. So how can we be happy this morning? Well, Psalm 1 tells us, it's very interesting, the very first verse starts with a disassociation before there's an association. There's a negative before there's a positive. Isn't it interesting that Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not. We get a not and two nors. He walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So it starts with a disassociation. There has to be a leaving before there can be a cleaving. We have to leave sin before we can cleave to Christ. We have to repent, as the Bible refers to it as. And whenever Jesus calls somebody to him, to follow Jesus essentially implies a leaving. What have you left this morning to follow Christ? If you haven't left anything, then you're not following Jesus. You're still loving the world. And you'll know when you've left something. It's when your friends start laughing at you. It's when you say with your lips, I'm a Christian. I don't do that. I can't go there. I don't do that. I I love Jesus. Say that. You step out with that. There's going to be, that's, you're no longer walking, standing, or sitting. Because now you've gone against the grain. And you'll be laughed at. You see, when the disciples were called, what did they leave? They left their nets. They left their livelihood. They left their parents. To follow Jesus implies a leaving. There has to be a disassociation. It doesn't mean that you are not to be in the world, right? Jesus said that we're... He didn't take us out of this world. He left us in the world and he sends us into the world. 
Now I want you to think about this, walking, standing, sitting. You see that in verse 1? There's a progression, isn't there? It's like the spiral downward of sin. First it starts with entertaining worldliness, watching worldliness, getting some counsel, listening to it. And then we find ourselves walking in it. And then we stop to engage in it. And now we're corresponding in it. And then the last is having a seat in it. And the seat is actually with scoffers. And Proverbs talks about three different types of people, three different types of sinners. It talks about the simple, and then you've got the sinners, and then you have the scoffers and the mockers. And there's a progression in sin, isn't there? The simple are those who are naive. They're not really sure. The sinners are now, now they know what they, sh- they shouldn't be doing, it, but they're doing it anyway. And then the mockers and the scoffers are those who are teaching people how to sin. And they're hardened in it. And it's a career. It's, 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 they're in it. And by the end here, this progression is it starts with, it starts with you know, just enjoying all the things that the world is enjoying. And then it just goes down deeper to hanging with those people. And now more and more getting tied in and rooted in. And our lifestyle becomes just like their lifestyle. And there's no leaving. There's just full engagement with sin. Well, when you read that, does that ring any alarm bells? If you're a good Jewish mind, and you're trained in in the scriptures, and what's the most important passage of scripture to a Jewish person? It's called the Shema, right? And the Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel. From Deuteronomy 6, you may recall these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these things I command you to do today, they shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. So Psalm 1 is a ring in the ears to a Jewish mind of what the Shema was calling them to do was just the opposite. So let me ask you this morning, what have you left to follow Jesus? Where's the world getting into you in an unhealthy way? Now we know we need to be in the world. I've used the illustration before of the boat. When's, when is the boat, how is a boat to be used? Well, if you just leave it out of the water all the time, that's, the boat's eventually, that's not good for the boat. The boat needs to be in the water. Yet the boat's not to be underwater. <laughs> and if you're in the world and you're sinking because you've so imbibed the world and its culture, that's not a good boat. And if you're always out of the water and never engaged in culture, then you're a boat that's just been taken out and put in, put in a storage place somewhere. But we're useful to the master The Bible says if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Is there a certain disassociation or association that's keeping you from God's word? Sinful habit, sinful inclination, Is there certain music or movies, TV? Is there anything that's inclining you towards temptation and pulling you away from the fellowship of God's people? 
Sometimes we have to make a choice. It might be a particular person that I can't do both well. I can't follow this person and their lifestyle and I can't love God. It's going to be one or the other. And the Bible says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean, then I'll welcome you. I'll be a father to you. You'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 6, the end of 6, beginning of 7. So that's the disassociation. There has to be the disassociation, and then there has to be an association. And for the righteous, it's delighting in God's word. That's the only distinction, that's the, the distinction in Psalm 1 between the righteous and the wicked. The biggest difference is the righteous delight in God's word. And they meditate on it day and night. It doesn't say they delight in church and meditate upon it day and night. It doesn't say they delight in evangelism and meditate on it day and night. It doesn't say they delight in missions and meditate on it day and night. It doesn't say they delight in fellowship and meditate on it day and night. It doesn't say they delight in prayer and meditate on it day and night. It says they delight in the word of God, in the law of the Lord, and they meditate on that day and night. And they found it, as the psalmist says in other places, better than honey, better than rubies, better than gold, better than silver. They've discovered wonderful things in this law. And they say, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. It doesn't say, because I said so. Often your parents you say, why should I do this? And they say, because I said so. I've heard that a few times. And we, and we like to think that's what God would say to us, because I said so. Why does God say so? Because your testimonies are wonderful. It's a better plan for your life. This book is the best plan for your life. So if you think, well, no, I'm just going to go trash my life. I'm going to go hang out with the group and just go get drunk, and I'm going to go do what I want. I'm going to spend my money recklessly. I'm going to live wildly. I'm going to do what I want to do. I want to be happy. I need to figure out what, what I'm to do on this planet. It's all about me and the me monster. Well, those are miserable people. And if you've been around them, there's misery that comes from them. It's a hard life. Serving sin is hard, and it's wearisome. But those that discover your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them, they say, you know what? This is better. This is so much better. I'd rather be a, a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. This is better. And they've discovered that God is better than sin. And for us, this is a beautiful thing because what we discover is that God's glory and our joy, as John Piper's been saying his whole life, are not at odds. You don't have to choose one or the other. Well, I'm either going to serve God and be miserable or I can serve sin and be happy. Is that not the big lie? That was my life. And the reality was I was miserable because I was serving sin. But you serve Jesus and you will be happy in the inside. He changes hearts and lives. And so the man's chief end, we said last week, is what? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And what did C.S. Lewis say to that? that? That John Piper took hook, line, and sinker and wrote books about it? The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That's C.S. Lewis. And it's true. The best way that you glorify God is to enjoy him. Well, how do you enjoy him? Is discovering him in this book. This book of the law 
is not to depart from our mouths. We're to meditate on it day and night, and you'll be prosperous in all that you do. Joshua 1.8, because it's about a person. This book is about a person. The Word became flesh. And so we need to be planted here by streams of living water. I entitled the sermon Planted because it's in contrast to the wicked who are just described as, as chaff, as blowing away. There's nothing to them. Here today, gone tomorrow. But for the righteous, this leaf doesn't wither even though there's a scorching heat of summer and there's a dead of winter, but those roots are going down deep and they bear fruit in its season. And not every season's a season of fruit. And right now might not be a season of fruit for you. It might not be springtime. It might feel like the dead of winter. Or it might feel like the heat of summer. You feel like you're withering. And God needs to be our portion. Notice the psalmist, in the meditation this morning, there were 10 verses where the psalmist says in Psalm 119 that his delight is in God's word. But two of those are in the midst of difficulties, in particular. Psalm 119, 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. 143. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. So delighting in God's word isn't just in the good times when all is going well. It's in the midst of trouble, anguish, and affliction. In hard winters and hot summers, the tree stays planted in God's law, and we bear fruit in its season. Now I want to show you the connection that's real important here between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. You see, Psalm 1 and 2 are both talking about the righteous and the wicked, and they're both introduction psalms, and neither of them have a title. And they're both setting out the course of the rest of the psalms. And it's to show us that there's a king, and the king reigns over the nations, and the king is the head of all the earth, and we're to delight in this word where we learn about the king. And so both Psalm, psalm 1 begins with happy, Happy is the man. Look how Psalm 2 ends. How does Psalm 2 end? Happy or blessed are all who take refuge in him. And who is him? Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But happy are those who take refuge in him. You see, as I mentioned, Psalm 1 and 2 are, are both describing the wicked. And they describe the righteous and <clears throat> their meditation <clears throat> of what they sow and what they reap. And in Psalm 1, we are told that when, when God shows up, it says the wicked will not stand in, in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So why do the nations rage? And the word here is like tumult. It's like the raging sea. It's a tumultuous up and down and raging it's chaos. The nations rage and the peoples meditate in vain. The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah. That's the Hebrew word Mashiach or the Greek is Christos. That's where we get the word Christ. They're against the Lord and his Christ saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is what the wicked are bent on doing. This is, these three verses of Psalm 2 are the nation's rebellion. 
And in the midst of the nation's rebellion, we get God's reply. And God's reply to the nation's rebellion, look with me at Psalm 2, verse 4. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You can rebel all you want. You can be tumultuous as all you want. You can say there's no God. You can do all. He laughs. He's saying, I have installed my king on my holy hill. I raised him on the third day. He's ascended into heaven and he's coming back for his people. And they're going to marvel at him who love him. And those that hate him are going to try and hide in the rocks because he's going to crush them. Doesn't sound very nice. I was saying in Sunday school, you know, what happens if, if you come into the courtroom and you mock the judge. You know, when the, the, you come into the courtroom, that judge has the gauntlet, they've got people around them in authority, and he, she or he or she can just slam that thing down and you're in contempt of court and off to jail you go. You respect the judge. And if you mock the judge in front of all the people, what will happen? You're in trouble. What happens if you mock a police officer when he pulls you over? And let's say three other police officers pull over with them. A lot of times when there's one, there's two. And when there's two, there's three. I've had it happen. I've had three of them just because I looked at one of them. I was a knucklehead driving in Brooklyn when I was a, a young and dumb, you know, 20-year-old. And a police officer made a U-turn right in front of me. And I looked at him like, who do you think you are? Here I am with my Maryland plates driving in Brooklyn. Well, that went over real well. He pulled over in front of me, another one pulled behind me, and another one pulled up to the side of me, and I was hemmed all around by three police officers. And I can't say all the words that they said to me, but they basically let me know that we don't do this in Brooklyn. In Maryland, you can do what you want to do, but in Brooklyn, this is what we do, and you will give respect to these police officers. And one time I was skateboarding in Brooklyn, and we, came, we were skating on the street, and they came and said, you need to leave. And we didn't pick up our boards and leave fast enough. And the guy pulled out his billy club and said, what words did you not understand? And he was coming over. He was going to inflict force right down on the spot. We picked up our boards, and we got out of there. The point is, there are certain authorities that you don't mess with. And we've seen police brutality, and that's not good. So it's probably it's where illustrations fall short. God's justice is just is just. And when God calls all of creation to account, when he gives the covenant words, when he calls the prophets to bear, he calls all of creation to account to say, you have mocked me in front of all creation. And they all testify. All of creation testifies that every one of us has mocked the judge of all the earth and we are undone and deserve to be perishing and blown like chaff and destroyed and thrown into the fire and destroyed. God set his king on his holy hill and we thought it was funny. It's not funny. And so God has sent his son and thankfully in sending his son, he took the curse for us. He came and took this punishment for us by becoming weak. He will come back in strength, but he came first in weakness suffering as the lamb that's led to the slaughter. 
But the rest of Psalm 2 will take place. And Jesus pipes up in verse 7, and he finishes out the decree. He says, I'll tell you the decree, verse 7. The Lord said to me, you're my son. Today I've begotten you. This idea of I've installed you as my king. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's what Jesus has been installed to do by his father. And so the warning to us after hearing God's response and Jesus' response to the nation's rebellion is there's a requirement. And the requirement is, therefore, O king, be wise and rulers, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. There's how to be happy. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Submit to the sun. Pay homage, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But happy... Happy are all who take refuge in him. Are you taking refuge in him? You see, Psalm 1 and 2 are both ultimately about Jesus, are they not? Who's the only one who did Psalm 1? Who's the only one who's meditated, this blessed person who's meditated on the word day and night and made it his love? Who came into the world and said, I delight to do your will, O God? That was Jesus, Psalm 40, verse 8, fulfilled in Hebrews 10. It's Jesus, the righteous man and the blessed man in Psalm 1 is Jesus. Well, who is Jesus in Psalm 2? He's the Messiah who's God's son, who's coming back. And he's saying, blessed are those who find refuge in him. Happy are they. So come find your rest in Jesus this morning. And lower your expectations of what this world can do for you. Do you know the serenity prayer? I only knew the first half of it for 20 years of my Christian life. The serenity prayer, which is often used in AA and those struggling with addictions, and I happened to be, the first time I heard this, I was on a bike ride with a guy that was a serious alcoholic, ended up trashing his marriage, and God broke him and humbled him. And now he loves the Lord, he's a counselor, and he's been renewed through this brokenness that's come to him. But in that brokenness, he found Jesus. Well, anyway, we were biking together. There was three of us, and we started up a hill, and he, he just, just destroyed his derailleur. And we were both on the side of the road. I waited for him while the other guy biked back to the car, and we sat there and had a nice conversation that I'll never forget. But he shared with me the serenity prayer because he had it memorized. And here's the first half, the part we're familiar with. God, give us grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Here's the rest of it. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Let me just read that last part again. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. We still want to dictate to God our terms. Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to your will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life 
and supremely happy with you forever in the next. We lower our expectations of what this world can give us. We know we'll get it all in the end. But right now we delight in his word. And there's so much of it about waiting. And so much of the songs this morning were about waiting. And we will feast in the house of Zion. And we wait for you. And there's this longing. And and Lewis described these longings as that was the greatest joy in itself, was the longings. Because he knew that there was something this world would never give to him. And he wanted to follow the cup of where the blessings came to back to the source. And now he's with the source. And I want you to experience the source. So let's come to him afresh. Let's pray. Lord, this book is all about you. And it's here where you speak. And Lord, we get so crowded out. We've got ESPN and Facebook and Instagram and the weather and sports and the Olympics and all these things on our phones. And your word often gets neglected. So Lord, forgive us. We are hungry for living bread. Lord, we have found it in Jesus. Forgive us for looking elsewhere. Come satisfy this heart afresh. And save us, Lord, from sin and from destructive lifestyle habits and things that are worthless. May we leave those afresh today to follow you. For you are worthy, we ask in your name. Amen.